reign of Jesus Christ, something we all look forward to. I think every Bible teacher, pastor faces a dilemma. A, will he preach from the Bible, or B, will he preach the Bible? It's one thing to preach from it, quote it, and then move on from it and never return to it. And it's another thing to let the Bible speak for itself and preach through it. And when you do that, you end up on certain parts that are more difficult than others. And Daniel chapter 11 is a classic example. You notice that there are 45 verses. If you have uh, read ahead these verses, you know that they're very complicated. And uh, the next dilemma one would have in going through this is, should I do it in about 10 weeks? One chapter, because you could easily take ten weeks and go through it. But you would be filled with so much historical, prophetical information above and beyond what you already have, it would would probably uh, be counterproductive. And so this morning, we're going to take it all in one lump sum. And let the Spirit of God apply it to our hearts. And that will be great. Uh, You have an outline that was put in your bulletin with all sorts of wild names I dare you to try to pronounce when you get home. And uh, this serves as a sketch outline of chapter 11 that if you are so inclined and you want to study this out in great detail with all of its prophecies, have a blast. I've done it. It is fun and it's challenging. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that before we even start this prophetic glimpse into the wars that Daniel saw in his future, we know that ultimately Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever and ever. If we really knew what that truth meant, our songs that we sing to you would be filled with hope and encouragement. Our lives would be different. And I pray, Father, that you would touch us with the reality that you are in charge, that history is your story as you unfold in advance here. What to Daniel was future, what to us is history, and yet some of it is future. I pray that our hearts would be touched with the fact that you're in charge. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're like me, this week brought some uneasy memories to you as you heard about what's going on with Iraq, moving toward Kuwait. I vividly remember that 1991 January when in the afternoon it was announced over television that we had finally invaded Baghdad by air. The world was uneasy, right? Oh, man, what's going to happen? Churches were packed. People thought, this is it. This is the end times. I then remember that my heart sank when Israel was brought into the picture. A bystander, not even involved, Iraq decided to aim its Scud missiles toward Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. My heart sank because I have friends that live in those places. And I could picture them donning gas masks and taping up the windows and all that that meant. And as I looked on the television and saw what was happening, I thought, once again, Israel is being brought into the war zone. Like it or not, she's in it. Now, Israel has always been in the war zone. Israel will always be in the war zone. Ted Koppel will always feature something about the Middle East. CNN will always have a blurb about the Gaza Strip. It will be unending. It has always been that way. It will always be that way. Chapter 9 says desolations are determined to the end. It's tough to watch. 
the war zone that Israel is in. Um, one of the reasons I believe that some of our tour groups thin out right before we go to Israel is a lot of people get scared. In fact, I know this to be true. Somebody will say, well, I was going to go to Israel, but we canceled out last minute. We, we heard Peter Jennings the other night, and he told us about what's going on over there. And there is that fear factor, what might happen if we go while we're there. And of course, flying into Israel, one gets that ominous feeling like these people are taking this stuff seriously because all of the flights that land at Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv park the planes at the far end of the airport. Nobody is allowed to have a terminal slot. You park at the far end and buses will bus you on the other side to the terminal because in case there is a bomb in the aircraft you're traveling on, they don't want the terminal to blow up. Comforting, isn't it? Now, chapter 11 is the vision that Daniel began in chapter 10 that made him sick when he saw it. He mourned. He didn't eat for three weeks because chapter 11 unfolds a nightmare of warfare that would happen from his future as he looked into the prophetic future. Actually, the whole world has known war perpetually. It's estimated that only 8% of world history has been a time of peace. 8%. That's small. I noticed an article in the Canadian Army Journal that said since 3600 B.C., 3 billion, 640 million people have been killed by warfare. 3 billion, 640 million people killed by warfare. They said if you wanted to estimate the value of the destruction, it would be equivalent to making a solid gold belt around the earth 100 miles wide and 33 feet thick is the value of destruction from cumulative warfare. You might ask, what's the purpose? Where do wars come from? Where do they start? Do they start in halls of politics? In war rooms in the Middle East or in Asia? No. They start within the human heart. Listen to what James says. Where do wars and fights come from? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? It all starts in the human heart. Selfishness abounds. People are greedy. Wars begin. And it's that selfishness that marks the devastation that Daniel sees from his time all the way to the future time. You should know that out of all of these verses, there are 45, there are 135 fulfilled predictions in the space of 35 verses. Think about that, please. 135 predictions that can be historically documented as having been fulfilled all within the space of 35 verses they're giving. Very, very detailed these prophecies are. They are so detailed that today we're going to be like a crop duster. We're just going to kind of swarm over the landscape and touch down the prophetic landscape from time to time and cover this whole chapter in one fell swoop. This is how I've outlined it. You can see it from what I've passed out. Conflicts of the past and conflicts of the future. That's the outline of Daniel 11. Verses 1 through 35 tell you all about conflicts of the past. From our perspective, from 1994, they're fulfilled. They happened within the 69 weeks of Daniel. 
chapter 11, verse 36 to the end, is yet prophetic. It's yet future. There are conflicts yet to come. I am presupposing that you have been here for our studies in Daniel. I know there are visitors. I cannot help that. And so there's an element of confusion. This is our 19th study in the book of Daniel so far. The best way to view this is through the lens of Daniel's 70 weeks. Do you remember Daniel's 70 weeks? 69 and 1, 7 weeks of years. Well, the first 35 verses are the past. They've been fulfilled in the 69 weeks of Daniel. And the others will be fulfilled during the tribulation period with the Antichrist. Now, I know that people scoff at prophecy, especially when you find out that in 35 verses, 135 predictions have been fulfilled. People say, now, wait a minute. That's too detailed for me. Uh, Things like that don't happen. It's one thing to make a broad prediction. It's another thing to make a detailed prediction and have it come to pass. Thus, some will conclude, it is not prophecy at all. It's history. Somebody, after all of these wars happen, penned this down. It's history. The real issue is your God. How big is He? If your God is the one who created the heavens and the earth and can speak to men in advance, and God knows everything, is this a big deal? It's not a big deal at all. We would expect an omniscient God to be omniscient about the future and to paint with great detail the things that happen even before they happen. That's why we read Peter's epistle. He said, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the coming and power of Jesus Christ. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We have something that we can look at that's concrete, and that is fulfilled prophecy. Now, some might say, now, wait a minute. There's a lot of prophecy. A lot of people have made predictions and they've come true. Soothsayers have been all throughout history. Nostradamus made many predictions. Some of them were accurate. That's the key word, some. Not all. Yes, there's been the Edgar Casey's, and what about Jean Dixon? She's made some pretty good ones. Some is the operative word. Jean Dixon, the pundit and prophetesses of Washington, D.C., has made many predictions over the years. She's been hailed for her accuracy. What many people don't know is her failed prophecies. They're not published. Uh, They don't make uh, good news. People don't buy that. But you ought to know that she's made many predictions that were false. In 1964, she said the Vietnam War will end by 1965. She amended that in 1965. She said it'll end in 1966. It didn't end until 1972. Back in 1958, she said, Red China and the United States will declare war this year. It has never happened, ever. Back in 1959, she predicted Red China would be admitted to the United Nations. It didn't happen until 1971. 67, Jean Dixon said, a cure for cancer will be found this year in 67. Thousands of people around the world hung on that false hope, only to be let down. Never happened. 68, Jean Dixon predicted the Democratic nominee for president would be Lyndon Johnson. It was Hubert Humphrey. In 1968, she predicted before the election Dean Rusk would resign as Secretary of State. He never did resign. 
1968, she predicted Russia would be the first nation to put a man on the moon. Wrong again. The one that really tickles me, back in 1968, she said in a column in Washington, D.C., and it went all over the country, I see no marriage in the future for Jacqueline Kennedy. The next day, Jacqueline Kennedy announced that she married Onassis. That's very different from a true prophet in the Bible sense. You had to be 100% accurate. If they were found not to be so, they were stoned to death. They were accurate. Bible prophecy is different. Oh, you can make predictions and maybe even have some of them come true. It's like a broken clock. That clock's bound to be accurate at least twice a day. Just keep it broken, fix on an hour, and, you know, oh, look at it, it's right. At twice a day, it's right. The rest of the time, it's wrong. Now, let's look in verse 1 at these conflicts of the past. We're not going to read all 35 verses, but as I said, like a crop duster, we'll touch down on a few of them. The conflicts of the past are a series of predictions concerning nations. Some of them we have already seen. Some of it you already know. Prophecies concerning Persia and then Greece and then Egypt and Syria at war with each other. Look at verse 1 and 2. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, this is the angel speaking here, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. Persia has a long history, and two things, and two things alone are said in these two verses. Number one, the angel said, I'm going to strengthen this king named Darius in the year of his reign. I'm going to strengthen him. He was strengthened indeed to the point where he became, along with Cyrus, numero uno and numero dos, rulers of the world. They took over Babylon. They let the Jews return to their homeland, and they became in charge as a world-governing empire of the then-known world. What is interesting to me is the angel says, I, even I, as an angelic being, will strengthen this Darius. I wonder how much we think about supernatural activity going on in our world today. Last week we talked about demon activity. What about angelic activity? How much do angels influence governments? You might say, well, it looks like it's not influencing ours that much and others that we know about. You might be surprised just how involved angels are. And knowing that should change the way you serve the Lord. You've got an audience. Every time you do something for the Lord and you think, nobody sees me. I'm not known in the church. You've got an audience. The angels are watching. And of course, God is watching. There was a pastor of a very small congregation preparing a Sunday morning message. Very few people would hear it. He'd work hard all night long. His wife came to him and said, What are you spending so much time on a sermon so few will appreciate? He turned to her and said, Honey, if you only knew how large my audience was. When the angels of heaven are watching, nothing that we do for God is trivial, he said to her. Nothing you do for God is trivial. They're watching and they're strengthening. Verse 2, four rulers are mentioned who will come. The fourth, which the text says is richer, has strength, and will come against Greece. 
is none other than a character by the name of Xerxes, a powerhouse of a warrior, who amassed an army, get this, two and a half million soldiers back then, two and a half million guys ready for battle, along with a navy of hundreds of ships, he invaded Greece. That was a mistake because he was defeated by the king mentioned in verse 3. And now in verse 3 and 4, prophecies concerning Greece. One is a character you're familiar with, Alexander the Great. Let's read about him. Verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and according to his will. And when he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity or his family, his kids, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Alexander the Great, 18 years old, nobody heard of him. By the time he was 21, 22, uh, he had uh, essentially conquered the area of Greece, Macedonia, pushed the Persians out. By the time he's 31 years old, he's the ruler of the world. He had an interesting personality. He was this do-anything, type-A, aggressive kind of a guy. So much so that once he conquered all of the known worlds, there were no more armies that he could fight, he sat down and wept. He wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. I beat everybody, and I'm only 31. You know, what's left for a guy like this? What do you give a guy like this for Christmas? He's done it all. He became very frustrated, very bitter, very inward in personality because there was nothing left for him to engage in and do. It's interesting that people of this personality type, especially successful people, have the highest suicide rate. And those that are common laborers, the statistics show us, have a lower suicide rate. They do better in life than some characters like Alexander. When he was still in his young 30s, he was in Babylon, got drunk, got a fever, and he died. Now, notice what the text says. It says his kingdom will be divided toward the four winds of heaven. Interesting phrase, not among his children. Did you know that Alexander had a half-brother who was mentally retarded? He had an illegitimate son. And by the time of his death, his present wife was with child. After he died, she conceived or delivered, excuse me, this child. So there were three possibilities of the posterity of Alexander the Great who could occupy the throne. All of them were murdered so that no one of his relatives could become his heir. Instead, the kingdom was divided between, guess how many generals? Four. Just like it says, the four winds of heaven, four generals took over the Grecian Empire. Cassander, his general, took over Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus, his second general, took over Asia Minor and Thrace. Seleucid, his third general, took over the area of Syria, Mesopotamia. And finally, Ptolemy, his fourth general, took over Egypt. And now we have prophecies concerning uh, these people um, in the next several verses. All right. Something before we move on. Alexander this great type A character, says he will do according to his own will, and yet God predicts exactly what he'll do when he'll die and who will take over for him. Four generals, four winds that will be divided. His kids won't have it. On one hand, you got a guy who thinks he's pretty tough, flexes his muscles and says, I can do anything I want. And God says, 
up to a point. That's called sovereign control, folks. And though Alexander the Great was willful, he was arrogant, at the same time, he was a pawn on God's chessboard. God was using him, I believe, for future plans. For Alexander the Great spread the Greek language through the known world. And the Greek language became a worldwide language, the most technical, exact language ever spoken by men and women on this earth. And that's what the Greek New Testament was written in some years later and was able to spread throughout the known world so quickly was because of Alexander the Great's push for Greek culture. I bring that up because behind scenes in world history, we have a God who is moving people like little pawns on a chessboard. Oh, they think they're hot stuff. God says, yeah, you're so hot. Here, move here. Do this. It's not apparent necessarily at first. I think of Saddam Hussein. What a madman. Yet because of what he did, the gospel was able to go to millions of people in Saudi Arabia when our troops went there in Desert Storm. Franklin Graham of Samaritan's Purse and other organizations, including us, sent tracts in Arabic to the soldiers. The soldiers sometimes passed them out. Sometimes they blew across the landscape. But for over 200 years, the gospel has never been able to get into Saudi Arabia. It was four years ago. Not only that, but when Iraq started fighting the Kurdish refugees and pushing them out of the land, relief groups, missionaries were able to come to the Kurdish refugees. And the missionaries stood up in amazement and said, for years we prayed for an open door with these refugees. There hasn't been one till now. They're so ready for the gospel. They're so open. And the gospel spread like never before. So even behind the scenes, with all these atrocities, there's a God at work. Beginning in verse 5 through verse 20 is a detailed list of prophecies concerning Egypt and Syria. Uh, let's look at uh, a few of the verses. We won't look through all of them. It's complex. Also, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. He shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now, folks, in those verses, all the way to verse 20, 200 years of history are packed. 200 years of warfare between two dynasties. Seleucus, which became the Seleucid Empire of Syria, and Ptolemy, that general of Alexander, the Ptolemaic Egyptian Empire. North and south, geographically situated north of Israel and south of Israel, and Israel's in between, getting hammered for 200 years. And without going through it, you could spend weeks on just these verses. Are all sorts of predictions made about this king and that king and his daughter and his niece and their uncle and they did this at this battle? It's fascinating historically. It's been fulfilled historically. But we don't want to go through all of it. Um, we do want to answer this question, though. I had this question this week. Why on earth is God so detailed, especially concerning... Syria and Egypt, the king of the north, the king of the south, their son, their nephew, on and on for 200 years. Why is it so detailed? 
Well, there's three important reasons you should know about them. Number one, because the warfare between the north and the south affected Israel. Israel's right in the middle. Israel's between the hammer and the anvil, getting pounded by king after king, battle after battle. You know, as I look at history, Jewish survival is miraculous. It's miraculous. You can't find any other group or nation that has been so dogged, so hassled, so persecuted, kicked out of their land, their cities destroyed, more than the Jews, and still survive. There's not one like them. Here's a few instances, even concerning these prophecies. The Seleucids up in uh, Syria killed 50,000 Jews as soon as they came into power. The Syrians then moved into Caesarea, a city down in Israel, killing 60,000 Jews. In 70 AD, when the Romans came in, they killed, as soon as Titus came to Jerusalem, 1,300,000 Jews and took many of them captive. As history went on, Constantine, who became the first quote-unquote Christian emperor, outlawed Judaism and cut off the ears of Jewish men and banished many others. During the 5th and 6th centuries, no Jew could hold political office or have an important business position. In the 6th century, 60,000 Jews were killed and others sold into slavery. In the 8th century, in Spain, the Jews were abused and persecuted during the Inquisition. Then in 633 A.D., Islam became the power. In Saudi Arabia and all over North Africa, it was illegal to be a Jew. They were persecuted. They were kicked out of those countries by the Islam, by the Muslims. And the Christians have no better track record. The Crusades of the 11th century brought this slogan to the lips of these so-called Christian soldiers. They said, kill a Jew and save your soul. And a massive campaign throughout Israel by these crusaders to kill the Jews. In 1350, the Black Plague spread in Europe. Who'd they blame? The Jews. A half of the Jewish population was destroyed because of that blame. As years went on in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 800,000 Jews were pushed out into the sea, dying of drowning and exposure. 800,000. Then history takes us to World War II with Adolf Hitler. Buchenwald and Auschwitz, six million Jews were burned or went to their death in the concentration camps. And yet, Israel in the war zone continues to survive as predicted by God. One of the queens of England asked her prime minister, who was a Bible scholar. She said, prime minister, show me just one thing that would prove the Bible is true. He quickly said, the Jew, madam, the Jew. The Jew has survived as God has predicted. Think of Israel today. Four and a half million people in a tiny little state the size of New Jersey surrounded by a hundred million enemies. A hundred million people who would love for her to go away or be destroyed. And so God is detailed in these prophecies to show you between the north and the south being hammered all of these years is Israel and she survives. There's a second reason why the detail is given. Because it's giving us a historical background to somebody beginning in verse 21 who is a real enemy of the Jews, Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember him from a few weeks ago? 
the Syrian madman, Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's a third reason I believe the detail is given. It's to show off God's track record. And I think it's great. I can show people, hey, read Daniel 11. Find out when it was written. It shows God's track record. God has fulfilled all of these predictions in the past. Now, why is that good news? Because if God can fulfill in such detail all the predictions in the past, all of the rest of the stuff he said he would fulfill in the future, he's going to take care of. And if God is this detailed, do you think he's overlooking some little problem you're having? God doesn't care. He doesn't see my life. This thing has happened to me. God's not watching. Uh, I, I hope after looking at this chapter a little more closely, that thought would be banished forever. God knows the hairs of your head. He numbers them. God is concerned about you. Fulfilled prophecy gives you a handle on your tomorrow. Every tomorrow has two handles. Did you know that? The handle of anxiety, which a lot of us grab a hold of, or the handle of faith. When you see prophecy fulfilled, it moves you to grab a hold of that handle of faith. A more sure word of prophecy. As we were singing that song, Battle Hymn of the, Re- Battle Hymn of the Republic, this morning, I thought about fulfilled prophecy and I was going, yes! Can't wait when that is all fulfilled. It changes the way you sing and your outlook on life. Corey Ten Boom said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future into the hands of a known God. Daniel's looking ahead. It's sickening him. And yet, God is in control, as we have seen. Now, there are several divisions, as we mentioned. Beginning in verse 21, a lot of space is given to one of these kings, one of these Syrian Seleucid kings. Beginning in verse 21 all the way to verse 32 is a guy featured by the name of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV, verse 21 through 24, describes his rise to power. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come and peaceably seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province. He shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, the spoil, the riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. All of this was fulfilled between the Old and the New Testament. Those 400 silent years, they are called, is when all of this happened with Antiochus IV. He illegally took over the throne, and he gave himself the title, I spoke to you a few weeks ago, Theos Antiochus, Theos Epiphaneus, which means, I am God manifest in the flesh. It's quite a name. Hello? I am God, manifest in the flesh. Theos Antiochus. Actually, he turned out to be Crepus Maximus. He killed the Jews like nobody else. He marched into Jerusalem and slaughtered 80,000 of them on his way back from Egypt, which is mentioned also here in verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, that's Egypt, with a great army, the king of the south, shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. 
He shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of his portion and his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Now, this is the invasion and victory of Egypt, the king of the south. Look at verse 27. It sounds very modern. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. If that doesn't sound like a modern peace conference, I don't know what does. Did you know that in the last 3,100 years, 8,000 formal signed peace treaties have been broken? Hey, we're going to have peace from now on. Let's shake on it. Let's sign on it. Let's have the cameras in on it. Only to find out they broke it. We just can't maintain peace. They'll speak lies at the same table. Verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. He shall do damage and return to his own land. And at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall be not like the former or the latter. Antiochus swept down from the north through Israel into Egypt, overtook them, was on his way back home to Syria through Israel. He heard there was a riot in Jerusalem. He stopped the riot and desecrated the temple just for kicks. He then, in arrogance, turned back south to Egypt to invade once again something he had already plundered. By this time, the Roman army had gotten wind that Antiochus was trying to strong-arm his way around the world. Roman troops came into Egypt. And when Antiochus came to Egypt, he was met by a Roman commander who said, you lift one sword, buckaroo. This is paraphrase, but gives you the meat of it. You lift one sword, and you have declared war against Rome, and we'll defeat you right here. So he was hesitating. What should I do? Should I make a move or should I peaceably go home? As he was hesitating, the commander drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes. He said, make your decision before you leave that circle or you're dead meat. Knowing that he had no choice, he went back home. But he was very angry. As he went through Israel, he vented all of that anger upon the Jews. He went into the temple. He broke the temple down, erected a statue of Zeus, took a pig, slaughtered it, the most unkosher meat the Jews could ever think of, and sacrificed on the altar of sacrifice a pig, spreading pig juices throughout the temple, put harlots in the temple, made it a capital offense to have a copy of the scriptures, circumcise your children, keep the feast, keep the Sabbath, In other words, to be a Jew. He killed 80,000 people on that attack. 40,000 of them he took into captivity. He was called the madman. This was the abomination of desolation to the Jews. It devastated them. Their country was in ruins as he came in and massacred them. I mentioned a couple weeks back that in 1 Maccabees, not a biblical book but a historical book, There was two women who defied this madman, took their babies, the eighth day circumcised them according to God's law. Antiochus found out about it. To make a public example, killed the babies before the eyes of the mother, strung the babies around their necks, marched these mothers with their dead babies around their necks through the streets of Jerusalem, and then pushed them over the pinnacle of the temple where they died with their babies around their necks. He was absolutely insane. And these verses 
unfortunately highlight what was coming upon the Jews. And that's spoken about all the way to verse 35. Now, this is remarkable. 135 predictions within 35 verses historically documented. It is absolutely amazing. It's precise. Which means all of the predictions God has made about the rapture of the church, the tribulation, the coming of Jesus Christ, Him ruling over the earth, will also be fulfilled. Oh, I've heard that for years. I'm getting tired of waiting. I've heard about judgment. You Christians have always said, da-da-da-da. Reminds me of a man whose lifelong ambition was to own a barometer. Finally, he got enough money, lived on Long Island, went into the city, Manhattan, bought this classic barometer, polished wood case, gold and bronze and silver on the dial. It was just a classic. Took it home, unpacked it, took it out, set it on a shelf. What really bothered him is that the needle seemed to be stuck. It was pointing to hurricane. It was a beautiful day. There's no hurricane. He kept pointing at it, shook it, hit it, get this thing working. He was so angry, he decided, I'm going to write a letter to the manufacturer. I buy this thing. It costs me so much. It doesn't even work. Wrote a letter, drove to the city, left the barometer at home, drove to the city the next day, mailed the letter in New York City to the manufacturer. When he came back to Long Island that evening, he found that not only was his barometer missing, so was his house. It was right. The needle was pointing to a hurricane. A hurricane came. This stupid thing. It's never accurate. And there's some people that kind of look at the Bible that way. This thing just never works. You just try to get it right. It never works. God's been saying this for years. You preachers have been saying this for years. There's a storm coming. There's judgment coming. One day it will come, friend. How do I know that? Because of the accuracy of prophecy fulfilled so far. To Daniel, this was all future. To us, it has happened, even as it is written. Verse 36 takes us to the final division, the second division. It's much shorter, and that is conflicts of the future. Between verse 35 and 36, there's a huge gap. We leap across the centuries to somebody who's called the king. He's not Antiochus. He's not a king of the north or the king of the south, as we read in these verses. He's somebody different. And it happens at the very end of time, the text says. Let's read a few of the verses. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. In their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, precious stones, pleasant things. He shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God. He shall acknowledge, advance its glory. He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain." And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Seems to be a coalition between Libya and North Africa against him. And the king of the north, which most supposed to be the Soviet states after the breakup, shall come against him like a whirlwind with 
chariots, horsemen, many ships. He shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But they shall not escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold, silver, over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Now, this is not Antiochus. In fact, you're hard-pressed to find any fulfillment of this ever because it hasn't happened yet. Moreover, it continues in chapter 12. There's not a break, even though it looks like a break. That was added later. Notice, at that time, at the time of this king, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble, such as never since there was a nation even to... That time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is not found written in the book, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Whoever this king is, is yet future. Because at that time, it says there will be a time in history unparalleled, It will be so bad, it will be the worst time in history. There'll never been a time like it. Jesus even predicted that. It will be at the tribulation period, will be the worst time the world has ever seen. Also, during this time, after this time, will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Now, this hasn't happened yet. This is yet prophetic. Dealing with the character the Bible calls the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the man of sin a future world dictator. It's something that Antiochus foreshadowed, but he will make Antiochus, Hitler, and all the rest pale in comparison. He will be ruler over the entire world, even as these others were, but he'll have a broader domain. So, the conflicts of the past predict and foreshadow the conflicts of the future, as we read about here. I believe that not only this dictator will take in the European common market or a ten-nation league that he brings to power, but also will involve the sword of Islam. As I look around at the world today and I see what is happening in the Islamic world, the Mujahideen have brought their troops from Sudan, from Libya, from... Um, Pakistan and others and are right now fighting in Bosnia. There's proof that in northern Africa the Islamic fundamentalist terrorists are training a people to be planted as terrorists in the United States, in Europe, and other parts of the world. They've already leaked into places like Egypt and have killed American uh, tourists. These terrorists have killed many tourists over the past several months. Also, Iran is continuing its nuclear arsenal. Everybody's worried about Iraq. It's Iran people should be worrying about, as you see what they're doing. All of these groups have one thing in common. They hate the Jews. 
They have an antipathy toward Israel, and they'd like to see it destroyed. And, of course, this guy will be a part of it. He'll make a covenant with the Jews, but he'll break it. Look at verse 36. It speaks about his arrogance. He will do according to his own will, exalt and magnify himself above every god and speak blasphemies against the God of gods. Paul says he will oppose and exalt himself above everything that is called God and demand to be worshipped as God. He'll be very much like his mentor, the devil, who said, I will be like the Most High, puffed himself up in arrogance. I think one of the reasons people will flock to him is because he exudes self-confidence. He is in control. Oh, we like this. There's no self-esteem problem with this guy. He'll be out to fix the world. I heard of a Texan who went to Niagara Falls. The New Yorker said, look at that. You ever seen anything like that? You have anything like that in Texas? The Texan said, no, but we have plumbers who can fix that. Well, the Antichrist will try to fix everything. He'll be puffed up with pride and just try to fix all the world's problems, but he won't be able to. Uh, real quickly, uh, notice three areas where this guy is a little bit opposed to. He's off. Tradition, notice it says he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. He will throw off any religious constraint, any tradition, any respect of anybody that brought him up in any kind of religious system. Number two, nor the desire of women. That's a hard verse to translate. We don't know exactly what that means. Many Bible scholars will suppose that he will be a homosexual. Can't be conclusive on that. I know that rustles some feathers, but that's what it could possibly mean. Nor the desire of women. Then notice, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above them all. Now, I would say that the world is pretty ripe for this kind of a person. I think that this sort of reflects many values this world is gravitating toward. This kind of fits the bill. Very sad but true story. A woman in Denver went into a jewelry store. She told this to her pastor. Sort of indicative of the time in which we live. She wanted to buy a gold cross. She said, I'd like to buy a gold cross. The jeweler said, do you want the plain one or do you want the one with the little man on it? That's what Jesus Christ was to him, a little man on a gold cross. And this Antichrist will disregard any religious system, anything that's sacred at all, reflecting the value of the world. Then his adoration is seen in verse 38 and 39. Instead of women and God and apple pie or whatever, he'll worship military strength and power. He'll bring in a new world order, his. He'll be clearly in charge. Then verses 40 through 45, that's the good part, speak of his end, his annihilation. As the Antichrist brings in his armies and they sweep down to Jerusalem, though he hears news from the east and this north and south coalition, as the troops in their anger, led by this madman, come against Israel in the war zone in the future, something's going to take them by surprise. They're going to be caught off guard by something in the sky. They're going to look up. And Revelation 19 says Jesus descends from heaven with a sword and places them in the war zone, or in the wipeout zone, I should say. There's no battle here. He wipes them out at Armageddon and destroys them completely and rules and reigns over the earth. 
Jesus Christ is coming again at this time, at the time we read about, the time of this character. There will be judgment after tribulation, and there will be resurrection. He's coming. Oh, he came the first time very peacefully to save people from sin. The invitation's still open. But Jesus left, and he said, sort of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. And when he comes back, it won't be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's coming to take over. To do to this world what men have failed to do. There was a cathedral in the Swiss Alps. Beautiful cathedral. Known for uh, miles around as sort of a centerpiece of beauty. It was known as the Cathedral of the Valley. Not only was it beautiful architecturally, but it had a, a pipe organ that had been constructed, and it had the most beautiful sound to it. People from, again, all over wanted to hear the sound of this music. As time went on, the uh, organ deteriorated. Didn't work. Sound pollution instead of beauty filled the air. It's attitude discordant every time you tried to play it. Experts were brought in from all over Europe to fix this thing, and they'd try and they'd work at it, and every time they'd try to fix it, just these weird sounds would come out of it. People were tired of hearing it. Finally, another man, an older man, knocked on the door of the church one day, and he said, hey, could I have a crack at it? Let me try to fix it. For a few days, he worked in silence, making the sexton of the church a little bit nervous. Finally, Third or fourth day, around 12 noon, beautiful music filled the air, filled the valley. Farmers dropped their plows. People in the square started going to the church. They hadn't heard music like that in a long time. Sexton said to this one character, we we flew in experts from all over the world. They weren't able to do it. How were you able to? He said, 50 years ago, I built this organ. I'm its creator, man. I know exactly what is every part of it. And as its creator, I'm the only one who can really fix it, restore it. Jesus Christ will take this earth after Antiochus, Hitler, the Antichrist, and every other joker has tried to fix it. And he'll really fix it. He'll say, move over, time's up, your history. And Jesus Christ will come again, destroy the nations of man, and set up his kingdom. That's good news. That's why when we sing that song, the battle hymn of the republic, get goosebumps. Can't wait. Father, we look forward to when Jesus rules and reigns. We ask that you rule and reign in our lives today. And if there are those who have come who don't personally know you, that they give their life to Jesus Christ this very morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.